Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Sophia Abdulhai, Abdulruf Lamoshi, and Rajavendra Rao, and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. Welcome to Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. This is Todd Ponsky, and today we are recording live from Akron Children's Hospital. And our topic today is blunt solid organ injury. And uh, the title that David Notrika gave us was Everything You Wanted to Know About Blunt Solid Organ Injury. And that's actually a quite a fitting title for what we're going to get into. We've already done a previous podcast on uh, trauma part one, and this is really trauma part two. And with us today, we actually have two guest faculty. First, I'd like to introduce my uh, co-host, Dr. Mark McCollum. Dr. McCollum is here at Akron Children's Hospital. He is a staff surgeon here. He's been here for 15 years. He's assistant professor of surgery at Northeastern Ohio College of Medicine, and he is our trauma medical director here at Akron Children's Hospital. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Todd. And our guest of honor is Dr. David Notrika. David is the trauma medical director at Phoenix Children's Hospital and is associate professor of surgery at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. David, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, just to give the audience some background on why we were very excited to have you here is you have clearly recently emerged as the expert in solid organ injury, and a lot of that has to do with an incredible work that you did on something that many of us haven't done, which is really put together a fantastic multi-center prospective study to really better understand all of the elements of solid organ injury called atomic. Can you tell us a little bit more about what atomic is and what you guys did? You bet. First of all, um, that is very kind. Atomic um, started around 2010, and it's interesting because when we decided that we were going to do an algorithm for how to treat solid organ injury, uh, we were really inspired by all the research that had been done up until that point. So while previously there was some evidence on how long you should keep patients in the hospital, no one had ever tried to do a prospective study and and the evidence was starting to come out that maybe you didn't need to keep patients in the hospital as long. So we developed the algorithm by, by looking to see what information was out there and then we started asking questions. And those questions will ultimately uh, became the grade publication that we published in the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So the studies that were being done were really showing that uh, you did not need to keep patients uh, in the hospital for uh, grade plus one and that a lot of the limitations that we thought were important probably were not as important. I had amazing uh, collaborators uh, when we started Atomic and Atomic was started um, really with five hospitals and we expanded it to 10 hospitals and, and now we're continuing to expand the the opportunities to do multi-center collaborative research. So going back to your original question, Atomic is a consortium of hospitals that do research together for trauma. It started out with uh, people that knew each other and it expanded to more people who knew each other and then it started doing some really great research that ultimately led to uh, numerous publications that have kind of you know put some evidence behind uh, what we've been doing. This is great. And uh, it's been a true honor for us here in Akron to have been a part of that. So thank you for including us. So 
topics. Let's dive right into, I can tell you that our practice has changed here based on the literature that you've been publishing. Let's go through, there's been certainly, David, a lot of management of solid organ injury based on historical studies or historical publications or at least dogma that we've all been taught. And you're really dispelling a lot of the stuff we've been taught in the past. So let's get into some of the The specifics here. Uh, Mark, did you want to start with that? Sure. So, so David, um, in reference to solid organ injuries we've discussed, can you, uh, can you uh, flesh out a little bit that in patients with blunt solid organ injury, what is the evidence to support non-operative management based on hemodynamic status as opposed to grade of injury? That, that's a great question, Mark, because what we started to, to see from the work done uh, by the folks in, in Arkansas and then the uh, work that uh, Sean St. Peter did um, was that the original decision to manage patients based on grade of injury rather than hemodynamic status was kind of a consensus opinion or an expert opinion. That's how it developed. Steve Stilianos did that, and it was really important at the time because for the first time we were getting CT grades on patients that we didn't know what to do with it. But shortly after that decision was made, um, Sam Smith and the folks in Arkansas said, hey, wait a minute, you can actually uh, manage these patients based on their hemodynamic status, you don't need to know what their grade of injury was. And that led to a paper very early on that said, hey, you divide patients up into stable and unstable, and that's how you manage them. And then nobody seemed to pay attention to that paper, which was a great paper, and they followed it up with another paper called Throwing Out the Grade Book. And if you know anything about uh, trauma literature, it's important to have a great title. And so that paper did have a great title, and, and we looked at it and realized that um, that uh, he was on to something. Sean St. Peter then uh, did a study where they managed patients based on hemodynamic status and then did a prospective study, and the Arkansas folks did another prospective study, and we started to have some real scientific evidence that said, yeah, you can manage patients based on uh, hemodynamic status rather than grade of injury. That's how we took that first leap, was going from throwing out the grade book effectively to um, let's look at the patient. And if you think about it, pediatric surgeons have always said, let's look at the patient. Let's, let's make the decisions based on our physical examination skills. And CT scans are important, but, man, looking at the patient's still important, even in 2018. So thanks, David. And, and along those lines, so since we're talking about hemodynamic status and, and hypotension a little bit, can you help us understand, you know, in children with blunt uh, liver or spleen injury, we know that uh, hypotension is a late finding in hemorrhagic shock. Can you describe some of the other factors that we would use to, to define hemodynamic stability? You're absolutely right. Let me, let me go back to that because you are 100% right that hypotension is late finding, that by the time kids are hypotensive, it's very, very late. And then you look for the evidence to support it, and you can't find it. You, we all know it. Those of us who take care of injured patients know that that's true, but we couldn't find the literature you know, to support that. That haven't been said We've, since that time, since the original study, we actually went back and did uh, do that research and did show that um, hemodynamic status is a late finding, and most patients that need to be transfused, almost half the patients who need to be transfused early are not hypotensive. So that's half the answer to the question. The other answer to the question about um, what to use in order to define who's stable and unstable was incredibly problematic because even though you and I know what a stable patient or an unstable patient looks like, when you go to define it, it becomes extremely difficult. So some patients who have concurrent head injuries may not have um, uh, tachycardia. If you're an adult patient, you have hypotensin and you know that they're, that they're unstable, but some pediatric patients are unstable and not hypotensive. Some patients are tachycardic uh, due to pain and are not 
actively bleeding. And so ultimately we had to abandon the terminology stable and unstable. And we changed the terminology to patients who were bleeding or having bled recently. I will go further and tell you that when a patient arrives to you and they are hypovolemic, a pediatric patient arrives to you hypovolemic, the only thing that you know is that they have bled. You don't really know if they're still bleeding. As a matter of fact, you, you often don't know if they're still bleeding until you give them blood and they prove that they're still bleeding. That was a very, very difficult concept for adult trauma surgeons. But for pediatric surgeons, we all kind of knew in the back of our mind that a patient who comes in looking shocky may or may not still be bleeding because often they'll bleed a bit and then stop. They'll be in shock, but they won't continue on bleeding. Um, kids have an amazing ability to stop bleeding and far superior to adult patients. Do you use then in your center vital sign indexes like the shock index or laboratory values like serum lactate in addition to physical exam findings? So the SIPA, which is the shock index pediatric adjusted, was first described um, from the folks in uh, Denver, Colorado, so um, Acker et al. And they basically said, yeah, you can use the shock index, which is the, the heart rate divided by the blood pressure. But what the pediatric adjusted shock index does is it says it takes the old adage, which is that if your heart rate is higher than your blood pressure, you're in trouble. And then it looks at it for kids and says, actually, if your heart rate is you know 1.1 times your blood pressure, then you're in trouble. And um, it kind of just made an adjustment for kids. It turns out that what shock index does for you is it allows you to identify patients who are not currently in shock. It, it misses very few patients who are in trouble. So if your shock index is not elevated, there's a very low likelihood that your patient is experiencing hypovolemic shock. And that's how we use shock index. Unfortunately, we have a, a fair number of patients who have elevated shock index who are not actively bleeding or not hypovolemic. But the converse, which is that if your shock index is not elevated, those patients are probably not actively bleeding. Yeah, and just for reference, shock index is defined, as you mentioned, as heart rate over systolic blood pressure. And the cutoffs that we've used in, uh, in pediatric trauma is between ages four and six, a shock index greater than 1.2. In ages seven through 12, a shock index greater than 1.0. And then in kids older than 13, they follow along the lines of the adult literature, which which suggests shock index of greater than 0 0.9 indicate instability. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast uh, on the Stay Current app, uh, we will have attached all of the references and all, all of these uh, numbers that Mark just read off. We'll have those in the text section of the podcast. So Dave, another thing is we're, is we're moving along with uh, these trauma resuscitations in these children with uh, blunt liver or spleen injuries. A hot topic currently is uh, resuscitation and what fluids should be used. So from a crystalloid infusion standpoint, what are your thoughts as far as limiting crystalloid infusion in patients that you know are actively bleeding, not crystalloid, but bleeding blood? I think you got to start with the old adage is that they're not bleeding crystalloid. The thing that we have figured out is that if you want your patient to survive, um, giving them a tremendous amount of crystalloid is not a good way to do it. So let me start with where we were at before we started the uh, atomic publication, which is you had ATLS saying that you effectively gave 60 mils per kilo of crystalloid before you went to blood. And the adult literature was really showing that adult patients who got a lot of crystalloid did not do as well. You actually diluted out the benefit of one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one resuscitation. That was shown by Duchesne uh, in New Orleans. We started to see from work from John Holcomb that your chance of managing patients non-operatively went down if you gave a lot of crystalloid. And so there was pretty good secondary evidence to suggest 
that after you've given a patient 20 mils per kilo of fluid, that it's time to start blood transfusion, that if you want to manage them not operatively and if you want to have a good outcome. And the, the evidence to support that was really pretty good. Now, there was some evidence that children were a little bit more resistant to the negative effects of crystalloid than adults. But even in that paper, which, which was another Denver paper, the patients who got excess crystalloid still had some adverse effects, including being on the ventilator longer. So really strong uh, tangential evidence to support it and some great head-on evidence on adults to support switching to blood transfusion early. And uh, that's how that got into the uh, atomic algorithm. And now that we've been doing that and become very comfortable with it, we are really happy with it. The other thing that happened was one of the trials that was set up to look at massive transfusion, or one-to-one-to-one transfusion, uh, found that when they gave uh, blood early and often, that not as many people went in to require massive transfusion. And that, I think, speaks worlds to the effectiveness, because if you give this stuff early and don't give them a ton of crystalloid, they don't even go into that DIC and need that massive transfusion. That's actually where you want to be. I think for me and for everyone else, that was probably one of the more important things that I've learned from what you've been publishing, is that's a huge paradigm shift to give blood earlier than we had been taught. But when you're looking at the outcomes, you were noting the benefits of giving blood early. I mean, the reason it was designed, I think, to give a lot of crystalloid early on is just we just didn't want to transfuse patients. What about the complications of transfusion, short-term and long-term, and how do we know that that is now not going up because we're giving more blood? Oh, I mean, Todd, that's a great question. You know, we're starting to do some work on massive transfusion, and um, I know uh, Mark's doing some studies on massive transfusion in, in kids. They're hard studies because there are not that many children that are massively transfused. And so when you have a relatively small population receiving the uh, massive transfusion protocol, and the complications of it are fairly rare, it's going to be hard to know that, that this is completely safe. That having been said, what we know from the from the adult series, because they have a lot more patients with massive transfusion protocol, um, is that it does seem to be safe and it does seem to be the right thing to do. So Dave, I think that's a pretty nice segue into the next, the next point I'd like your comments on, and that is, as we move into blood transfusions, you know, we've been taught and a lot of, we're all still kind of on the heels of our massive transfusion protocols, and we were arguing about ratios of one to one, one to one to one, 1.2 to one, and it's it seems like now real-time uh, viscoelastic assays, TAG or ROTEM, are getting a lot more uh, traction so that we're directing component therapy specifically as opposed to shotgunning a transfusion. I'd love your thoughts on that. That is a great point. So directed resuscitation, so using the TAG and the ROTEM, I, I think makes a lot of sense um, from a theoretical standpoint. In my institution, we do that. We actually use TAG and ROTEM to guide the therapy. I think we use TAG technically. It's much harder to find great evidence to say, yes, this is the, the, the right thing to do, just because the numbers are small, same problem that we had before. But like I said, right now we're doing directed therapy, and I think if there's a, if there's a randomized control trial comparing one-to-one-to-one or, or 1.1 to one-to-one versus TEG in children, that will ultimately answer the question. I, I don't know that we have the answer right now. Yeah, I agree, but those numbers are starting to come back, and we're seeing more and more data that suggests directed component therapy not only saves money, but it saves products. 
product and more efficiently can resuscitate a patient than the uh, shotgun approach of ratio-driven massive transfusion. I would have to agree. And, you know, at some point I thought we were going to have um, whole blood more readily available. So it didn't matter whether or not we had the, the components. We were just going to get back with their bleeding. But we still don't have that available um, in Phoenix. And I'm hoping that the adult centers drive the desire and the need and the availability of whole blood transfusion for trauma patients. Yeah, I think it is making a comeback. We're seeing one hospital in particular in our region that's using whole blood as well. So thoughts then on the patient who has uh, ongoing bleeding is hemo dynamically unstable and you're in the process of resuscitating them with blood products. What are your thoughts on angioembolization, its safety and efficacy in pediatric uh, blunt liver and spleen injury? Let me take the question separately. So um, from a safety standpoint, I think we've proved safety. So I think um, angioembolization is safe in kids. Efficacy is a much harder question because we know that um, a lot of patients who have contrast extravasation on CT will stop bleeding even without angioembolization. What we saw in our failure patient is that none of the patients who got embolized for splenic bleeding went on to fail. So that's good news. But a lot of the patients who had angioembolization for liver bleeding um, did ultimately go on to need a laparoscopy, a washout, another procedure. A lot of those were converted from active bleeding to managing bile complications or, or managing a lot of blood in the abdomen. So there were good evidence to support that, that the angioembolization was helpful even in the hepatic injury patient. I, I think that the data is supportive of angioembolization for splenic injury and for hepatic injury. Not every patient who has contrast extravasation needs an angioembolization because so many of them will stop. So you really need to look at your patient, and if they're continuing to bleed, then that patient needs to to have angioembolization. We captured that in the algorithm by saying, look, the the criteria for needing angioembolization is similar to the criteria for failure of non-operative management. If they don't stop, if you're having to to give blood, then yeah, take them to the angio suite if they're stable enough. Yeah, certainly. And uh, an anecdote uh, regarding that recently was a patient, a multi-organ injured patient that we had recently who um, had not only a a grade 5 splenic injury with active extravasation on CT scan, but also had a hepatic injury and a renal injury. Interestingly, we took him to the angio suite. We got a nice splenogram, but there was no active extravasation at the time of injury. Now, we went on to work on the additional bleeding from the other organs, but it was interesting that this massive uh, extravasation on CT scan was not actively bleeding 45 minutes later when they were in the IR suite. Children are absolutely amazing, and um, all of the things that we have to do to keep adult patients alive may not benefit children. That's the, that is the hardest part of, about changing the paradigm for uh, managing children is that they don't behave like adults. So uh, once we have these patients resuscitated and stable in kiddos with solid organ injury, should ICU admission be determined then by injury grade, hemodynamics, or a combination of both? You know, that's a great question. And uh, before I wrote the paper, I was absolutely certain that hemodynamic status was the only thing that mattered and that we could save a lot of ICU stays. When I actually did the literature search, that was supported up until grade five. So if you have a grade one through four injury, you can definitely say, all right, well, we will, if they're hemodynamically stable or if they're not actively bleeding, they can be managed on the floor safely. But for the grade five injuries, there was enough evidence to suggest that those patients in and of themselves, based on the grade of injury, warrant an ICU, that, yeah, I would recommend grade five injuries go, go to the ICU. Grade five injuries that are hemodynamically stable, it's a very small subset of patients who could potentially be managed on the floor with a grade five injury. So it's not a big deal. Most grade five injuries um, will have bled significantly and would have gotten into ICU based on that. 
but those patients with grade 5 injuries need to be in the unit. So on those patients, either on the unit or on the floor, do you have a threshold of uh, volume of transfusion that would then indicate failure, or is it a case-by-case? So there's good evidence to, that we finally have a, a threshold for failure, and, and the threshold is 40 mils per kilo of all blood products. And that data came to us from uh, NEF and the military experience. They're the ones that showed that if you got transfused uh, more than 40 per kilo of blood products, you were more likely to need operation and more likely to die. And we'd all kind of felt that 40 per kilo was the cutoff. In uh, some of the expert panels, they had said, yeah, 40 per kilo was a failure point. Uh, We didn't have great evidence going into it, but now that we've really started to say, yeah, that's the failure point, it seems to hold up really well. Yeah, and that's the threshold that we'll use in most cases. Uh, Once we have these children resuscitated, admitted to the floor of the ICU and stabilized, you know, on rounds the following day, you see them and they're up and around, jumping on the bed like it's a trampoline. What are your thoughts as far as time frame for bed rest? How long and what are the parameters that help you decide? I'll give you a little uh, background on bed rest. I ran into to Steve Stelianos and I said, you know, I, I think we're requiring too much bed rest for these kids. He says, we never included bed rest in, the, in this. I'm like, really? <laughs> and it turns out um, bed rest wasn't really part of the initial requirement. Even uh, on the APSA protocols, but it became a very important part of the culture and what we did for the kids. You're absolutely right. They were not resting in bed. They were jumping on the bed. Sean St. Peter said, yeah, they're, they're anything but resting. And there's not much literature to support bed rest. Matter of fact, there's no literature to support bed rest. There's one study in, a, in adults where they compared adults who were given bed rest and those that were not, and there was no increased incidence of bleeding. The problem that we ran into is that almost every study that, that we wanted to reference had used bed rest, even though there's no evidence to support it. My personal feeling is that I don't think bed rest does anything. Uh, we were able to eliminate it in our renal injury uh, protocol because um, we had studied those patients and found out it makes no difference for renal injury, whether you're you're um, uh, walking around going to the bathroom or whether you're on strict bed rest. And I don't think that it makes a difference for a liver or spleen injury. I don't think that taking an injured organ and walking it to the bathroom is going to suddenly cause it to bleed. So along those lines, in kids that then are hospitalized for observation with a blunt liver or spleen injury, who show really no signs of bleeding, no evidence of hemodynamic instability, no drop in their hematocrit, do you use a time frame for observation, or are they able to be fast-tracked and maybe discharged within 24 hours? That is a great question, and uh, Sean St. Peter's um, answered that uh, for us in a prospective study and then uh, did a follow-up on it. And, and so, um, yeah, actually, it turns out you, you don't need to have them in the hospital for a minimum period of time. Most of these kids come in in the afternoon or evening, and they're hospitalized, quote-unquote, overnight and then uh, sent home the next day. Trying to pin down how long that was was a little bit problematic. And what we came up with was a protocol that says, yeah, we need to keep them in the hospital for 18 hours. And if they haven't bled in 18 hours, then they're very unlikely to bleed. And that was incredibly powerful for us to uh, limit the amount of time they're in the hospital. We further supported that by showing that the patients who were transfused and the patients who were failed, failed non-operative management, all failed early. And that further supported the fact that if you hadn't failed at 18 hours, you're probably not going to fail. And when it it comes to -to day-to-day variability in checking hematocrits, or in some cases hour-to-hour variability, if we're checking them every six hours, do you have a criteria or a threshold, a hematocrit or a hemoglobin point that indicates lab variability versus 
actual continued bleeding. We checked serial hemoglobin so long that we saw hemoglobins go down in patients who are not bleeding. And the reality is they, they go down for a variety of reasons. Lab error, uh, being drawn incorrectly, if they're drawn upstream from an, from an IV, um, it goes down. If, they, if we dilute them out with too much fluid, they go down. Um, ultimately, the better criteria for whether or not a patient is bleeding is not serial hemoglobins. It's physical examination and vital signs. And so if your patient's heart rate is continuing to go up, you have a problem. If your patient is showing clinical signs of poor capillary refill or pallor um, or cold extremities, those are the signs that let you know the patient's bleeding. And uh, there's good evidence to suggest that serial hemoglobins are not necessary, that you don't need to follow a serial H&H on a stable patient, that you should follow the physical examination and the vital signs. And that will identify every patient who will need transfusion and every patient who is failing non-operative management. Yeah, very good. And I think that underscores the importance of serial examination by a primary examiner as opposed to the, uh, the shift mentality of a different resident every day. I agree with you, I although I don't think we'll ever get back to the work hours that you and I had in training, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. More importantly, you know, um, half the patients who fail non-operative management do it because they develop peritonitis, not because they continue to bleed. So whenever these kids are ready to go home, do you have a standard follow-up regimen of a week, two weeks, four weeks? The rest issue I'll let you discuss as well as far as time frame where they really stay off of activities until you see them back. So, um, you know, the timing of follow-up was interesting. What we found is that a lot of patients with low-grade injuries never showed back up for follow-up. And so, when you think about all the grade one, grade two injuries who no-showed for their clinic appointment, we thought, well, we should find out something about these kids. And since there's such a low incidence of there being anything that we do for the kids at the follow-up appointment, we started doing telephone follow-up. And um, what that did for us is it actually let us know that the kids were okay, and it also prevented them missing even more school because they had already met, missed some school. So we do telephone follow-up for low-grade injuries, and uh, we bring back the patients uh, for follow-up with higher-grade injuries. That haven't been said. Um, we haven't found anything of any use in the follow-up visit. And I know as surgeons, we love our follow-up visits, and we think that they're super important. But ultimately, the patients who needed additional imaging or who needed additional therapy all presented back to the emergency room with pain or problems. And the ones that came to the office didn't provide much benefit to the patient. That's a great point, and that kind of leads me to my next question, which I think you partially answered. And that is, is there a, a type of injury, a finding on imaging, uh, or a symptom that would then uh, maybe move you to schedule additional imaging in follow-up to avoid a complication like a pseudoaneurysm or an AV fistula or something along those lines? came to figuring out what patients were, were having complications or which ones needed follow-up, we were in an information-free zone. And so what we did was we looked through the literature to find all of the complications of non-operative management that we could identify. And we converted those complications into symptoms and listed those in the discharge instructions. So what patients that are having complications come back for is they come back for abdominal pain, they come back for respiratory problems. So you have a splenic injury and, they, and they're having trouble breathing. That brings them back to the emergency. Room. So we just took that whole group of problems and put it into the, this is what you watch out for, and we put those in the atomic discharge instructions. And basically all of them direct the patient back to the emergency room except for jaundice, which um, is fairly common. If you've got a big hematoma, um, they do get jaundice uh, even though they're not having a complication, and uh, we directed them to call the office. Um, even if 
your jaundice because you're having a little bit of a bile leak or a bioloma, most of those patients uh, can at least be triaged with a, with a phone call so they don't automatically have to go to the emergency room. You clearly don't want to miss a patient with a bile leak and keep them at home, but um, a lot of times you can determine whether or not they've got a bile leak or if they're just um, mobilizing the hematoma just by talking with the mom or talking with the patient. So then in, even in a grade 4 or a grade 5 injury with active extravasation, there's no re- real utility then in scheduling a, a post or a follow-up ultrasound or additional imaging? Yeah, that's still a really tough question. So my personal opinion is that is that most patients, that patients with, li- with spleen injuries don't need it. There's a possibility that patients with liver injury might benefit from having a follow-up ultrasound. In studies where they did routine ultrasounds of, of every single patient, they found a lot of pseudoaneurysms. Matter of fact, they found so many pseudoaneurysms that it was so discordant with the number of patients who have delayed bleeding or delayed complications that just having a pseudoaneurysm of itself does not mean that you're going to go on to have a delayed bleed or a delayed complication. But we don't know what subset of those patients with with asymptomatic pseudoaneurysms really are going to go on to have problems. It's certainly less than 10%, but it may be even less than that. My guess is, based on the on the study that we did, that it's going to be extremely rare that any patient who goes home from the hospital doing well um, would develop any finding that would uh, potentially put them at risk for a life-threatening bleed or anything of that nature. Thank you for the very nice review. Uh, the atomic guidelines, specifically the grade paper and current management and evaluation of uh, blunt liver and spleen injury. So David, we've touched on uh, evaluation in hospital management, and now we have a patient who has uh, stabilized to the point that he is uh, ready for discharge. What criteria do you use then for time frame of follow-up? We switched to a, a follow-up that was really based back on grade. Um, so if they have low-grade injuries, we do telephone follow-up on those patients. And the patients with higher-grade injuries, we do ask them to come back for a follow-up visit. Um, that having been said, the patients who do follow up with those grade three, four, five injuries, at no point did we find anything particularly useful or helpful about that follow-up visit. The patients who had problems ended up coming to the emergency room um, you know, either before or after the visit. And when you really break down to what that uh, follow-up visit did for them other than have them miss an extra day of school, it's hard to point to any benefit for that in-person follow-up. The nice thing about the telephone follow-up for the low-grade injuries is it did allow us to know whether or not we were doing the right thing. And so from a study standpoint, it was great. But from a practical standpoint, I don't know that you need to drag those patients back into the clinic. Regarding activity restrictions, I'm going to answer that in two ways. So it turns out with the activity restrictions that you need, there's no reason those children cannot be back at school. They may need to change class five minutes before the other kids so they don't get roughed up in the hallways. Um, Kids can do a lot of bumping and contact sports uh, in the hallways, but they definitely can be back at school. They just can't be in uh, gym class or physical education class. And then for how long that is, the activity restriction, um, we didn't have any evidence for how long you needed um, activity restrictions. So we defaulted back to the APSA recommendation, which was grade plus two in weeks. So grade four injury at six weeks. I don't know that there's science behind that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm pretty certain there's not science behind it, but there's expert opinion behind it. And at some point, we'll have to do some research and figure out whether or not they really need those activity restrictions to answer that question. If you don't mind, I'd love to just kind of go through point by point. We took some notes, um, and I'd like just to review for the audience some of the points that you made. 
please jump in if, uh, if I've summarized them incorrectly. But I think we started by you presenting an abundance of evidence that supports non-operative management based on hemodynamic status rather than grade of injury. And that's been a long time coming. In addition, I think we discussed the hemodynamic stability and how hypotension is a late finding in children that are in hemorrhagic shock. And clinical exam findings like pallor, poor distal perfusion, serum lactate, maybe shock index, as well as tachycardia all can play a more significant role than actual hypotension when defining the child in hemorrhagic shock at an earlier state. I think you also pointed out nicely that there really is a a limitation to the amount of crystalloid that should be infused uh, prior to consideration or actual transfusion of packed red cells, and that's at 20 cc's per kilo of crystalloid. If a patient's actively bleeding, crystalloid's not the fluid they need. We also touched on patients with solid organ injury that do need transfusion, whether we should be transfusing them packed red blood cells, utilizing massive transfusion early with transfusion ratios of one to one to one, or if we should be directing blood component uh, resuscitation based on real-time viscoelastic uh, assays. And I think those certainly are coming around and are going to be the standard of care soon. For the audience that comes from all over the world, could you be more clear about the one to one to one ratio? Yeah, that's a ratio of blood products used in transfusion and broken up. Since we don't use whole blood because of cost and availability, we then break up the components of the blood into packed red cells, platelets, and FFP, and that would be the one-to-one-to-one ratio of those three components. So we also touched a little bit on angioembolization in blunt liver and spleen injury, and although we know it works, the interesting part is in spleen injuries, non-operative management works in almost all cases, and so really there's not a great added benefit for patients that need intervention. If they need intervention and they're unstable, splenectomy in most cases is the way to go. It is useful, however, in patients with multiple multiple solid organ injuries, like a combined spleen liver or spleen kidney injury, so that you can manage uh, active bleeding in one or two of the organs, not knowing specifically what your source of hypotension is. Uh, We spoke a little bit about children uh, requiring ICU admission, and that should be determined by clinical judgment, including both consideration of grade, specifically grade five injuries, and any hemodynamic instability. We talked about probable lack of need of specific bed rest requirements in these patients, and that early mobilization and limited activities would certainly be safe. We talked about as well bleeding patients with solid organ injury and what would indicate clinical failure. We've stated that that's been fairly well established in the literature that a 40 cc per kilo blood transfusion would indicate uh, clinical failure. Now that needs to be put in perspective uh, given the patient's hemodynamic status and where you are on the on the evaluation management curve, but 40 cc's per kilo of blood transfusion would indicate a failure in most cases. We've also touched on patients with blunt liver and spleen injury, the time frame for hospitalization. And we've decided that in most cases, patients with um, chemodynamic stability and no continued blood loss can be safely discharged within 24 hours. And finally, there's no real need in the asymptomatic patient, despite the grade or of injury or early imaging findings, those patients in most cases do not need additional imaging, although you have to take that case by case. Uh, but patients with significant complications related to uh, blunt liver or spleen injury often present with symptoms. Dave, before I let you make any final comments, I want to direct the listeners to the paper that most of this has been published in that David had lead authorship on. It's called Non-Operative Management of Blunt Liver and Spleen Injury in Children, Evaluation of the Atomic Guideline Using GRADE. This was published in the Journal of Trauma Acute Care Surgery in 2015. David Notrika is the lead author of this paper. And in the paper, 
each one of these questions is addressed and answered very clearly. So this is absolutely a paper that everyone should have printed in their office. This is one of those sentinel papers that you'll be referring to repeatedly, mostly because of the second page of the paper that has what I've been uh, referring to all the time here in Akron is the algorithm that David has created using these questions about how to manage a patient with solid organ injury. Yeah, it takes you through all the different situations and how to manage these patients and it is spectacular. These do hit on all of the radical changes that Mark and David just pointed out that have totally changed the way we've been taught to manage trauma patients. Giving early blood, not necessarily having those strict criteria for discharge or activity. These things are, are very new and, and need to be understood by everyone because this is a big change in our field. David, do you have any final comments? I think the main uh, comment is that, you know, even though I was the lead author on this paper, the this was the work of a lot of people. And so the co-authors that you see on the paper um, all helped develop this. And, you know, by the time that we had an algorithm that we were taking to study prospectively, we were on the 11th version of this algorithm, and we learned a lot in the process about, you know, how to make it, how to operationalize the algorithm, but we also learned something that kind of snuck in there uh, around the ninth edition, which is that if you have recurrent hypotension or, or if you fail to have a sustained response to that first blood transfusion, you failed. And so, and that was critically important because we did have a patient who responded, became stable, went to the CT scanner, and then became unstable again. And the decision was made to try and, and continue to manage that patient non-operatively. And we, I don't think we had really considered uh, that particular scenario when we, when we first were developing the guideline. And we realized that, yeah, early recurrent hypotension is a failure. It's not like being in the ICU and your hemoglobin drifting down. You didn't make it to the ICU yet that patient really needs to go to the operating room or at least go to the angio suite uh, very quickly. I want to thank both of you. This has been a very important audio chapter because this is so radically different than what we've been taught in the past and finally based on good multi-center data. I think we probably will need part three and part four and maybe part five for trauma because there's so much that goes into it, but this is a great start. Like I said, we'll put all this in the uh, text attachment to the podcasts for everyone to read. And uh, I want to thank again, both of you for a fantastic uh, recording. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. I Tom. appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you guys. Thanks, right. David. All right. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.